1: In today's show, now that the CDC has given approval for COVID-19 booster shots, we'll take a look at what the rollout will look like in our state and the best way to locate a third dose if you're eligible. And we wrap up our series on the legacy of sundown towns in the Mountain West and explore why their history still matters today. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control gave the green light to COVID-19 vaccine booster shots for certain groups of people. The list includes seniors, adults with chronic health conditions, and adults who work in high-risk settings. This week, many vaccine providers here in Colorado started giving out the shots to those who qualify. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been checking in with some of them to see how the rollout is going, and he joins us now with more. Hi, Matt. Hey, Erin. First, can you break down exactly who is eligible for a booster shot right now in Colorado? And I ask since it's changed just so recently.
2: Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, this list includes seniors, that's anybody 65 and up, adults with chronic health conditions, so cancer or obesity, for example. And then there's adults who work in high-risk settings. And this is a pretty big group of people. So think teachers, grocery store workers, just to name a couple. And now remember, the people who are eligible right now are only patients who received Pfizer's two-dose vaccine series, and you have to be at least six months out from your second shot to qualify. So there's a couple hoops to jump through here, um, especially if you received Moderna or the J&J vaccine, you still are not eligible. That could change soon. But for now, the federal government has only given the okay to Pfizer recipients. So that's what providers in Colorado are following right now.
1: Okay. now, I remember earlier this year in the spring, there was kind of a mad dash for people trying to get vaccine appointments. We had mass vaccination clinics happening at places like Coors Field and the ranch. Can we expect the booster shot rollout to look the same?
2: It's going to look a little bit different. There may be some similar elements to that kind of mad dash earlier this year, but it w- likely won't be anywhere near as chaotic. And that's mainly because we have just a, a much larger supply of vaccines now in Colorado. The state's health department has even opened uh, several large community vaccination sites around the metro uh, Denver metro area to help meet demand for booster shots there. Uh, up in northern Colorado. We haven't seen um, any of those mass vaccination sites yet. Uh, What a lot of providers are doing is just absorbing the demand so far for third shots and boosters into their existing COVID-19 vaccine clinics. This week, I visited Sunrise Community Health in Evans, just south of Greeley. They're Weld County's largest COVID vaccine provider. And what they've done is set up this walk-up vaccine clinic right in their pharmacy, and they're offering boosters to anyone who shows up and who qualifies under the new CDC guidance. Just simple as that. Cassie Sanchez is the pharmacy director there.
0: It is different from our mass vaccination clinics because you do not have to have an appointment. In our mass vaccinations clinics, we did require an appointment to make sure that we had enough stock available to all the patients. At this time, you do not need an appointment. You can just walk in at your convenience um, from 8 to 545 every day, Monday through Friday.
2: She says the word about boosters being available seems to be spreading through the community, albeit Somewhat slowly, but they're ready to respond to the demand as it increases.
1: And did she say how many they have done so far at Sunrise?
2: She says that the past several weeks they've gotten dozens of calls about boosters, but they haven't actually been able to offer them to most people until now. So this week they've been reaching back out to people, letting them know, hey, you can come in and get a booster. A couple dozen people have come in so far, um, which you know isn't anywhere near their capacity, but Sanchez thinks it'll definitely start to get busier soon.
0: I definitely do think it will increase as word spreads around the community. Um, Just because of the ease that they can come in and get the booster shot and how easy it is for people to walk in at any point, I do think that our demand will increase
2: statewide. We're seeing a similar story. According to Colorado's health department, we have just under 5% of people in the state who've gotten a third dose so far.
1: What has Governor Polis said about our state's ability to handle another wave of demand for booster shots, especially with some people still not having gotten their first doses of the vaccine?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of moving parts there. Um, During his weekly COVID-19 press conferences, Polis has repeatedly been encouraging residents to get out, get their booster shots as soon as they're eligible to mainly help keep case numbers as low as possible and keep hospitalizations uh, as low as possible too. He says that we're ready in Colorado. We have plenty of vaccines on hand to handle any kind of surge we might see this fall. And all the local providers that I've talked to feel the same way. Uh, The Larimer County Department of Public Health and Environment says that they're ready to help set up more mass clinics if needed. I also spoke with Dr. Michelle Barron at UC Health. She says that they basically have entire teams now dedicated to monitoring COVID vaccine demand in real time and then, you know, increasing their amount of appointments in response to that.
3: Just, you know, have spreadsheets and can look at how many slots are designated just for the first timers, how many are slotted for booster or third shots, and then they look at this and look at the trends and say, "Ooh, we noticed, and you know Fort Collins, they are already booked out three days. Maybe we need to open another half-day clinic there. So there's been a lot of, um, again, some really smart, great people that are really good at making this f- more flexible than it may appear on the surface.
2: UC Health and the state's projections are that peak demand for boosters in Colorado will hit around late October, early November. And that's just because that's about six months out from when a lot of people in the state got their first and second doses of Pfizer's vaccine. So later this fall is a time when we might see some longer wait times at vaccine clinics or more mass clinics in your community where you can get a shot.
1: Well, Matt, I wanted to end by asking what should people be looking for or watching to know when it's their turn to get a booster? And then how can they make an appointment?
2: Well, the good news is that all providers in Colorado who have been offering the COVID-19 vaccine all year are also now offering boosters so they're sending notifications out to patients letting them know um, you know what the rules are who's eligible and when so that would be a really good first place to check would be the place you got your first two doses of vaccine or one dose if you got the J&J if maybe you can't find an appointment with them all the pharmacies, King Super, Safeway, they're also offering boosters. I mentioned the state's drive through sites down in Metro Denver. Those have been expanded and will be running through this fall. In Weld County, um, Sunrise Community Health is offering walk-up appointments to anybody. And Larimer County's health department has a link to sign up for booster appointments on their website. So there's tons of places to check if you're looking for an appointment.
1: Good to know. Matt, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thanks, Aaron. You can find a guide to getting a COVID 19 booster shot in Northern Colorado on our website, complete with links to providers with appointments. That is at KUMC.org. Sundown towns are places that prohibited people of color and other minorities in their communities, often specifically after sundown. Loveland, Colorado is well known for being the sweetheart city because of its Valentine remailing program, but many longtime residents recall signs that once told Black people they were not welcome. Those memories, along with recent actions from the city council, have sparked a racial reckoning. In the final story of our series, After the Sun Goes Down, KUNC's Adam Reyes has more.
4: One of Loveland's first Black Lives Matter protests was in June 2020. Co-organizer Alasia Marshall held a, my blackness is not a threat sign, and turned to tell a 10-year-old girl.
2: You're loved, and you're going to grow up to be a
3: strong,
1: beautiful black woman regardless of what this world tells you, okay?
4: Marshall's very fond of the city she's called home for six years, despite racist comments, harsh stares, and angry backlash against her peaceful protest. And she's not alone. Discussions about how present racism really is, or ever was, in Loveland put residents at odds. This
0: black community is no longer victim of institutional racism. Yeah, we still also not as- welcoming, even though the signs are we gone.
4: Prejudice, like. The
0: Racism was was so known. It's even crazy to call it
4: history because it's like current then events.
0: Is happening.
3: Loveland has a town that accepts diversity.
4: Summer 2020 put the issue in the spotlight. A black door to door salesman held at gunpoint, armed, angry counter demonstrators at a Loveland Against Racism rally, and more like all white city councilor debates over race. Because I do not consider myself even remotely part of any kind of a problem out there in terms of racism. So I want to say, Dave, I thanks for not. Being a in August 2020, the mayor introduced a 275-word resolution to officially acknowledge systemic racism and diversity's value. No action required. The council's mostly conservative majority voted to shelve it indefinitely because... I
1: really do not vote on anything I haven't had time to read and study. That's been a, a
4: general council rule. Counselor and mayoral candidate Don Overcash and the rest of the majority say they just wanted to study the resolution in a future meeting. But that's not what they actually voted to do.
1: There were elements of it that I probably, upon study, would disagree with.
4: Overcash acknowledges a few racist individuals likely live in Loveland, but he doesn't think there's a pervasive problem, despite non-white residents testifying before the council about racist experiences.
1: I can direct you to people of color that would say, I don't see what the problem is. So that would say they're making
4: an issue. Overcash wants to focus on solutions, like affordable housing. He says Loveland's sundown past doesn't need to be addressed.
1: That's divisiveness versus solving the problem. So uh, I just think we got a lot of work to do
3: if we're talking about division, sweeping it under the rug only like divides us more.
4: Alasia Marshall, a black certified nursing assistant, says there'd be benefits to addressing hard history in a way that tells citizens,
3: black citizens, especially that we understand. We know where we've been and we we empathize. So how can we move forward?
4: Sundown signs, KKK rallies, a black nanny forced out, a more hateful acts worked to keep Loveland white back then. Today, it remains overwhelmingly white. Some try to justify its lack of diversity by saying something like this is all by chance and it's just. Kind of natural that white folks end up in charge of things dominating this town and so on that echoes in the hundreds of sundown towns the late sociologist james lowen uncovered nationally he says that narrative is false because between 1865 and 1890 Black folks, we're all over the place. That included Loveland. But things changed in 1930 and 40, as the census counted zero Black people in the city. This era set diverse population growth back decades in many areas, Lowen says, limiting Black generational property wealth. I
3: don't know what would draw people of color here, but I can tell you what turns them away. What turns them away is feeling like they don't
4: belong. Rob Pride moved to the area around 1990. Of Loveland's 37,000 residents then, about 100 were black. While the 48-year-old black man and local police officer says he's endured racism here, he insists it's not part of the community's overall atmosphere. But he says his view shouldn't be used to write off others' differing experiences.
3: Because they're not that way, because they're not racist, because they don't treat people bad, maybe the attitude tends to be like, it doesn't happen here, that's just not Loveland.
4: That needs to stop, he says. Racist experiences should be taken more seriously. Loveland's racial reckoning didn't end last summer. This year, talk of city-level inclusion efforts, like a diversity commission, led to intense debate between councilors and citizens. Some calling the idea divisive. And local school leaders are under fire for equity efforts. Still, there's forward momentum too, like local nonprofits organizing the city's first Juneteenth celebration this summer.
1: Did the Thirteenth Amendment end slavery? I don't think so.
4: 26-year-old Alaysia Marshall hopes to raise a child here someday. She wants them to know...
3: Even though like a place can have some spooky stories and a really shady past, it's still a place where you can go and feel safe and feel heard and feel listened to.
4: But getting there, Marshall and other non-white residents say, starts with acknowledging that really shady past. A difficult task, considering many white people aren't willing to believe those residents' daily experiences with racism now. I'm Adam Reyes.
1: According to 2020 census data, Hispanic or Latino residents currently make up about 13% of Loveland's population. Around 3% are Native American. The Adame and Crespin family can trace their mixed Mexican and Native American ancestry for over 100 years in the city. Some members created a nonprofit aiming to foster Loveland's diversity through advocacy and by co-organizing events like listening sessions and the city's first Juneteenth celebration this summer. Adam met three generations of that family in Loveland's Northlake Park to hear their experiences with racism and exclusion over the past few decades. You can give that a listen at our website, KUNC.org slash sundown. In just a moment, we'll sit down with some of the reporters from our After the Sun Goes Down series to learn more about how the idea for the project came about and why the legacy of sundown towns still matters today. Stay with us. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. This week, we've been looking at the legacy of sundown towns in the Mountain West. These are places that prohibited people of color and other minorities from living there. The practice was more common in the 19th and early to mid-20th centuries, but in many of these places, the legacy of that exclusion and racism can still be felt today. We're joined now by some of the journalists who worked on the series After the Sun Goes Down, Stephanie Daniel, Jackie High, and Robin Vincent. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, your work explored sundown towns in the West, Uh, Those are places where white people once drove out racial and ethnic minorities, posted signs that warned them to leave before sundown, or enacted ordinances to prohibit them from living within city limits. Stephanie Daniel, uh, I want to start with you. Some of us had heard about sundown towns in other parts of the country, but there hasn't really been a lot of discussion about the existence of these towns in western states. You reported on some of the earliest examples of sundown towns right here in Colorado where white people drove out Chinese Americans in the late 19th century. What kind of challenges did you face in uncovering this history? To create
3: a compelling radio story, I really like to have a strong character, a person that's experienced or has a vested interest in the topic on which I'm reporting. Since my story was about Chinese miners in the 19th century, of course, there was no one that was there that I could interview. During my reporting, I found out about Qin Lin Su, a Chinese immigrant who came to Colorado after building the railroad, Chin Lin Su, he literally stood out. He was six feet tall, he had blue eyes, he spoke perfect English. So he actually became a leader at one of the mining camps up in the mountains, and then later in Denver. And I read that his descendants still lived in the Denver area. So I went to work trying to locate them. And it, it took a while, but luckily one of my sources had the number for his great-grandson, and I was able to connect with him and his cousins. And I think including their knowledge of Chin lin Su and their perspectives of his legacy made the story much more compelling. Definitely. Was there anything that surprised you during your reporting? I didn't know much about Chinese immigrants in Colorado and the Mountain West. First, they helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. And second, that they faced so much discrimination when they came to mining towns. I would say most people don't know about their history
1: and their contributions to our region. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Stephanie, you know in your story that the impacts of this history can still be felt today. Could you talk about that? Sure. When I was researching sundown towns, one of
3: the legacies of excluding people of color is that cities and their agencies can become very white. And I thought that that was a really interesting tidbit. Um, You know, you have mainly all white police forces, boards of education or city councils, and then we see the ramifications of this every day. You know, the nationwide racial protest after George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis police, the anti-Asian hate that emerged from the coronavirus pandemic and indigenous nations and peoples who are working to have their traditional and ancestral homelands restored. Living in homogeneous neighborhoods, you know, with people who only look the same as us can have a real negative
1: impact on how we treat people who don't look like us. I'd like to turn to Jackie High. Uh, As KUNC's digital editor, you work behind the scenes with reporters to polish and package their stories for KUNC's website and social media channels, too. For this project, you also produced a video that opens the series, and it really gives us some strong visual representations of the impacts of sundown towns. Could you uh, talk about that?
3: Yeah, so I worked with KUNC reporter Adam Reyes to showcase U.S. census numbers in different sundown towns throughout the decades. And this data shows us just how diverse many parts of the Mountain West once were until white people in these towns and cities drove out or excluded minority communities. You know, it's one thing to listen to or read about the dwindling population numbers of Asian Americans, indigenous or black people in sundown towns. But the video presents images from census data that connects the dots and shows us this was a broad trend across the region. So these are numbers in the public record that corroborate the oral histories we've heard about sundown practices.
1: Let's listen to a clip from that video.
3: The first group actually
1: to be excluded on a mass scale
3: was in fact
4: Chinese Americans. A lot of people don't realize this. In the 1880s, um, maybe even a little earlier, Chinese people lived everywhere in the West. That was the
1: voice of sociologist and historian James Lowen. He uncovered thousands of sundown towns across the U.S. He died in August at the age of 79 from bladder cancer. Robin Vincent, could you tell us about the role that he played in helping this series come to life? Erin, he was essential
0: to this series, and I feel so fortunate that my colleagues and I were able to connect with him before he passed away. What we know about the presence of sundown towns across the US is thanks to James Lowen's years of research. So he began investigating sundown towns in his home state of Illinois in the 90s. And he expected to find maybe a handful instead he uncovered hundreds of sundown towns there and he then began looking for these towns across the country he spoke with historians older residents poured over historical records census numbers newspaper clippings Fifteen years later, he published a book titled Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. And the book followed a very successful bestseller he wrote called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And that book challenged the sanitized history of America that many of us read about in our history textbooks. Here he is in 2005 comparing the two works
3: any historian who knows about for instance the civil war and reads what i say about it in lies my teacher told me is not amazed okay but this book sundown towns is actually gonna i think amaze everyone sociologists and historians and so on because in it i think i have discovered and and published for the world a bunch of new stuff stuff that's never been written by anybody before and i think it's actually disgusting as well as amazing that it's never been written by anybody before. In fact, while I was doing the research for this book, which took me five years of doing almost nothing else, I kept expecting to find stuff about this subject, and I found virtually nothing at all.
1: Robin, during your reporting, some people have said that's all in the past, you know, implying that we should just move on. Why is there a need to focus on what happened in these towns decades ago?
0: So what we've found in some of these former sundown towns is that the effects of their racist and exclusionary pasts have lingering impacts, as Stephanie mentioned. Many of these towns are still predominantly white and people of color in some of these places say they still feel unwelcome. So this was certainly the case in the town that I visited, Moscow, Idaho, which is home to University of Idaho. It's to the point where some people of color there, they won't go out alone, they won't hike by themselves, they won't eat at restaurants alone they simply don't feel safe doing so. And James Lowen discussed one salient example of how sundown towns play into our present in a systemic way. He pointed to Ferguson, Missouri. It was there um, that many of your listeners will remember that the police killing of black teen Michael Brown and subsequent protests birthed the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, Lowen said Ferguson did not achieve true sundown town status status but it did try to keep black people out and in 2014 when Michael Brown was killed just three out of the 50 police officers there were black so Lowen called this a second generation sundown town problem. In other words, some of the systemic issues we confront today when it comes to racial justice can be traced back to this country's former sundown town and exclusionary policies.
1: That was KUNC's Robin Vincent, Stephanie Daniel, and Jackie High. Thanks so much for your work on this project, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Our series, After the Sun Goes Down, was produced in conjunction with the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find and share all of the stories and see photos and the video we mentioned that explores the broader impacts of sundown towns at KUNC.org sundown. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we'll get a preview and analysis of the three statewide ballot issues that voters will be deciding on this November. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC i